welcome to the Found Cause, where we found our cause and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Michael the Man behind the machine, and to my virtual front is Sebastian, the bookkeeper. Sebastian has told me himself that he is fried today. It's these long work days. I have the benefit of having short work days. He has got long work days. And as such, we're going to make this a short response video. Um, it's only two minutes and 34 seconds long. How does that sound, Sebastian? Oh, sounds great. Yeah, I mean, it might be way, way longer considering us, but we will try to do our best to keep it succinct. This is from an atheist. We haven't done an atheist in a while. Germania. Germania was the gracious moderator between uh, me and... Uh, I'm forgetting his screen name now. So I was Ramon. Ramon, I know. I was forgetting his screen name. Um, Alpha Centaurian. Alpha Centaurian, uh, the Roman Catholic. We just did a debate recently, a couple episodes back. And Germania has a stream that generally hosts questions. He's kind of one of these gentle atheist guys. And we, uh, I didn't know him beforehand. We looked up some of his videos beforehand. Really, I should say Sebastian looked up some of his videos beforehand, and so did Theodore, and uh, came across a question list of his. He said in the debate that the most consistent Christians are Calvinists. Um, so maybe we're just hampering home that point with this episode because we are Calvinists, and he has a video called 10 Questions for Christians from an Atheist. And I think most all of them are answered by um, a consistent Calvinist. So we'll see what he has to say. But... Uh, I think we will be pleasantly, sub, uh, you know, pleasantly confirming Germania's comment that uh, Calvinism is the most consistent Christian philosophy. Indeed, with most of his videos, it seems that they are addressed towards the problem of uh, people like William Lane Craig or Frank Turek, how they, in many cases, they talk about free will, and that's how they seek to answer many of these questions. I so will just keep that in mind. To see the con so you can contrast how we answer that versus how other Christians may answer those questions. Yeah, and if you've watched our podcast enough, you'll know that we. Um, I don't even know. <laughs> we like I guess some odd theology. Um, I try to give people the benefit of the doubt, um, but. I do not like the style of Frank Turk or William Lane Craig in the way they do apologetics. I don't think it's Bible-based. It's totally philosophy, and it's bad philosophy because it's totally man-made. So um, we do not condone the ministries of William Lane Craig or Frank Turk, for that matter. Not that God can is thwarted just because people have bad philosophies, but we would not um, say you should also use those philosophies. So know that we stand uh, united, if you can say that, on the front of the atheists saying that they argue poorly. William Lane Craig and Frank Turek argue poorly when they argue in a philosophical way because they have the wrong philosophy. They don't have a Bible-based one. Without further ado, let's see the questions that Germania has for us. Here are 10 questions that I have for Christians. Why did God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden, knowing beforehand Adam and Eve would disobey? This is a great question. Like you said, Sebastian, it's all getting at this root of the problem of evil and how could God allow evil? That's what most of these questions are. So what do you think? Why did God put the tree in the garden? Well, I would say that that was his design, his plan all along because he wanted history, what we know and experience today, to play out the way it did for his own purpose, for to display his justice, law, for example, are a few things that come to mind display his glory in the fall, knowing that it would happen and also ordaining that it would happen. And also I could even speak on God, the triune, triune God planning for the eventual coming of Christ thousands of years uh, later. Mm -hmm. 
And, uh, of course, we have New Testament references on that, that God always intended to bring everything uh, together in Christ, and the only way that could happen is through the fall and then redemption of creation. Um, but I might be devil's advocate here, Sebastian, and ask, um, why did God uh, then command Adam and Eve not to eat of the fruit if they were actually supposed to eat of the fruit? Well, because it was their desire to take things, take matters into their own hands rather than obey God. So he gave them instruction, but then in their hearts, they decided to not to disobey, to um, pretty much be like God in that sense. So even though he wanted God planned and ordained for the, everything to happen the way it did, uh, Adam and Eve are fault if that's what you're getting at michael because they did not uh, want for the fault to happen in a god honoring way but rather the way they wanted uh, things to go right i mean that that hits a point i wasn't even thinking of but um yes i think that you can't blame everything on god even though god designed it to happen because um he designed it for good he designed it for the ultimate goal which is bringing everything together in christ and showing his justice and his mercy and all the wonderful things that he's done um, that was his ultimate design from the beginning whereas those who he created with fallen natures or that ended up having fallen natures as he ordained um, their purposes were not good so um, they intended for evil when they did things so god uh, intended for good and of course his intents come to reality whereas a lot of our intents don't so not only is Adam and Eve to blame, even though it was an ordained will of God thing, but also it was part of God's design that he would tell them not to do something and then they would go and do it. Like that's why he said, don't go and eat of it because sin, the disobedience there, was part of the design creation. So it wouldn't have been sin if he told them, well, go eat it. And then they ate it. And then they're like, he's like, ah, tricked you. Now it's time to, uh, for the fall. Um, he is still just in the way he designed the story. Sin entered into Satan's heart along with countless other angels that followed him. Does that mean sin exists in heaven? Short answer. I'll answer this one first, especially if you can comment. Um, yes. And I know there are a lot of weird, we don't really know much about heaven. And so there's a lot of weird traditions, especially in the United States about heaven. And some would say sin doesn't exist in heaven, blah, blah, blah. Um, depends on what you mean by heaven. Um, we the, the reason people say that sin does not exist in heaven is because the final state of man is to be sinless and God hates sin. So that's all true. Um, but heaven as a concept is just where God is currently dwelling. And of course, sin existed in heaven. I mean, Satan comes up to him multiple times in the Bible, tempting people and asking God that he can go tempt them or destroy people's lives. And God allows for it. So, of course, sin existed in heaven. Um, the final plan is that everything is redeemed and that the sinners are sent into hell, including Satan and everybody who sinned. And then the sinless are the ones that inherit the earth and the new heavens and the new earth are made. So in the current heaven, yes, sin has existed. Um, I don't know that we can say it definitively doesn't exist there anymore. I mean, the, the evil angels were cast out of heaven, but maybe they're allowed entrance at some points. I mean, we don't really know how heaven works, but we would not say that sin um, cannot exist in heaven as it currently stands. What we would say is that in the new heaven, there will be no sin or death. So, right. That's what we can say. Yep. If God knows what it would take to make me believe, yet he doesn't do whatever that is, and I eternally suffer as a result, isn't that his fault? 
This is a great one. I'll let you take a bet at this one first, but this is one, Sebastian, we get like in our comment section, maybe 30% of the time from atheists is um, if God like wants me to be a Christian and why am I not convinced yet? Like why don't I have a magic school bus flying in the sky um, to convince me that, that God is real? Well, I would say he doesn't have to convince anybody to begin with. I mean, that's what I want to keep that in mind. Like, does he have to do it? Ultimately, what I mentioned before, we are judged and we suffer eternally in hell based on the desires of our heart. And, oh, you probably know the chapter and verse, Michael, but it's in Romans. And I would argue that God has created some people for a purpose to be redeemed, not deserving of one bit. Not, no one deserves to be a Christian. No one deserves to be saved, to be spared from judgment based on the desires of our heart. So that in mind. God also has also created people for the purpose of displaying his justice. As he's going to get later in the video, I could think of Pharaoh of Egypt, for example. Uh, yeah, and I'll get to the, so So that's one portion is that we, uh, we don't deserve to be saved by God. And so the atheist that says, why didn't God prove himself to me? Um, is really asking an inherently dumb question because why would the Lord God, the God of the universe, um, rescue you when he says in the Bible that there are many that are that he's that he's judging and that's his whole or one of his at least purposes for those people who he's judging his lives is to show his justice and so um, you serve his purposes just fine if you don't come to him as much as you would if you come to him um, now he has a particular plan for every single person's life so you serve more than just the purpose of getting judged or being saved there's other intricate things that you do like you affect other things in the timeline so there's plenty of reasons why you might be alive um, but one of them might just be that you never get saved and so um, you're not in a good position you shouldn't assume that god is going to save you right let's also put an asterisk in that you cannot assume that god is not going to save you so we call you you won't know that with 100 certainty until the end of your days so repent the call to every human is to turn to god and be covered under the only one who is sinless and didn't deserve to die which is jesus christ yeah amen to that now to take the the question's specific point he says that if uh if god knew what it would take to make me believe but he didn't isn't it his fault that i'm not like isn't it his isn't it the potter's fault that the pot is messed up and we would say it is the design of the potter for his messed up pot, um, but he made it. I mean, it says in Romans 9 is what you're quoting. He made certain pots for their different purposes. So it's not actually a fault that he has a pot for common use. Now, you don't want to be a pot for common use because that pot for common use is used for common. That is by all things. It's, it's a sinner and then it gets tossed out at the end. Um, you don't want to be one of those pots. So we would call you again to repent and, and turn from sin. But his design is for that pot to be used for common use. Like he made Attila the Hun. He made wicked men for wicked purposes because his ultimate end is to use them for good. Even if that, that person's ultimate end is to be wicked and they don't have any good in them. So it is his will that these that you, like God knows what it would take for you, Germania, to believe. And he doesn't convince you, at least not yet. Um that's that's his doing, um, but you'll still be judged for your sin because that's also part of his design. Like the Attila the Hun doesn't get a pass just because God made him Attila the Hun. He still is Attila the Hun, so he still gets tossed in the, the hellfire. Why does Jesus tell us to turn the other cheek and to love our enemies when he plans to cast all of his enemies into a lake of fire? 
ultimately, I'll take this one first, especially you can comment, ultimately because he is the judge and we are not. So we are called to execute judgment and justice on the earth, even by Jesus, um, as far as judging rightly between uh, two people in civil courts and making sure that people that um, deserve certain punishments on earth get them. Um, but God clearly lays out what, what punishments uh, are executed on earth and what are not. Um, for example, in God's law, murder gets the death penalty. So that's one that we can execute on earth through all the proper civil practices, right? You go to the judge, make sure there's two to three independent lines of witness, all that. Um, however, not loving your neighbor is also a sin and it's worthy of death, but not one that we can execute on earth. Not loving your neighbor is not one you can bring somebody to court to. It's not one you can try somebody with. And so that is ultimately judged by God in heaven. And so an enemy of ours may not have done anything to us that's legally wrong um, in a way that we can execute on earth. Like they might not have stolen from us. They might not have um, murdered our family or murdered us. Um, so we can't execute that kind of justice on earth. But we should still have mercy on them because God is ultimately going to have justice on them in the end. So we can be nice to them. And it's like heaping coals in our heads because um, all the more they are condemned for being evil against us. And, and that said, we can even pass up opportunity to civilly persecute somebody if they have stolen from us or they've done something wicked against us particularly um because once again god is the ultimate judge and so we do not want to um we, we want to be refined by the difficulties that come in life and let god handle justice mm -hmm. right on that note of letting him handle justice i perhaps Gur is getting at is does god have two different standards like one for himself and then one for the creation and or is it like an inconsistent standard? Like why is he saying, telling us to be nice to turn the other cheek, and then eventually in the end, in the end of time, he's gonna come in and kill all evil people? And well, I would say he is the impartial judge, as you mentioned. He's the ultimate judge. He can actually punish evil objectively without being petty. Yes, we do have prescriptions for how we establish justice on earth. But we can, even knowing ourselves, we we are not that competent. We are prone to emotion. And the call of the creator for his creatures, again, there's different difference there, is for us to imitate Christ in the age of mercy that we live in and display that character instead of seeking to you know, just decapitate people left and right. We deserve, we reserve, excuse me, judgment to the Lord when he comes back. But in the meantime, I think it is perfectly fine for him to expect us to be uh, Christ uh, loving, uh, loving each other as Christ would in this age of mercy and calling everyone to repent. Yeah. Plus, I mean, to be really weird, it's just practical as well to love your enemy. Typically, um, it might seem counterintuitive, but one of the Sermon on the Mount texts is Jesus saying, when your neighbor is suing you, um, run after him and try to make a kind of deal with them, try to settle before you actually get to the court. Because um, if he's right or if he's corrupt or the court's corrupt or whatever, you could end up in jail for something you could have just settled to avoid. And so it's just a practical matter to love your enemy. Um, there are times when <laughs> when you love your neighbor um, and it's, it's a matter of like defending your family over your enemy. In that case, you love your family more than the enemy. Um, so there are degrees of love in which you love your neighbor and you love God, of course, over your enemy, um, but you still love your enemy. Um, you don't, you don't lack love for your enemy. So if you're, if your enemy is coming to kill your wife, 
well, yes, you kill your enemy. Um, and that's out of love for your wife. So your love for your wife overpowers love for your enemy in that case. So don't get it, don't get it twisted into some weird pacifism way. Um, but uh, yeah, I think our, our summary here is that God is the ultimate judge. And so he gets to judge when we don't because we're imperfect judges. If I told you to love me or else I will let you suffer forever, would you consider that free will? Sebastian, you want to take that one? Sure. And, well, I would dispute that the idea of free will, We, I would say, and I believe you would say to Michael, we do have a will. We have desires. We have things that we want. We're not robots. And our we have inclinations, as we've been laying out all throughout this video. And I don't think, I don't know how he would define free will, but I don't think that we have free will at all. We are either slaves to sin or slaves to Christ. And I'm actually happy to be a slave to Christ. God turned my passions from one way to the other to seeing what is good, the creator of the universe, and to love him and want to act in a way that is consistent with Christ. And he didn't have to do that. I would, again, I'm just, I'm just uh, preaching to the choir here, Michael, to you, but he didn't have to rescue, turn my 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 will, but I think ultimately it comes down to him turning the will of people or or not doing so. Uh, yeah, and so you can see at the base ger mania here that we're questioning the value of free will, um, but we would say we have a will. Um, free will implies, and the way I think you're defining it here, is a will that is unencumbered by other inputs. Um, besides the self. And so you're saying, if I coerced you to love me, um, do you have unencumbered will? Of course not, because you're being coerced. So um, by definition there, you do not have that kind of free will. But we say it doesn't really matter because uh, incentivized will here, incentivized via coercion, um, is still a will. It's just not perfectly free. And we say perfectly free will doesn't actually exist outside of God. We we do not have free will, of course. I mean, I, I don't really know why philosophers think that we have free will or push so hard for free will because, of course, we're coerced by, like, everything on the planet. We have so many inputs that are affecting our will that, of course, we don't have perfectly free wills. Um, so, yeah, we, we question why free will is even a good thing um, or, or a thing that exists at all in human nature. We don't think it is. And so, yes, coerced will is not free will. We would even say that the idea of free will is not found in Scripture. So that's where we're, I was saying earlier at the start of the video that some debaters, philosophers import that idea into Christianity. Yeah. Now we will say, I mean, it all depends on semantics because there are free will offerings in the uh, Old Testament. However, you have to understand that free will in that case means that the offering itself is not a required offering. And therefore it is of it is a non-coerced offering. That's why it's called a free will offering. But um, the, the will itself, like as a cohesive concept, is not free. Did Judas Iscariot have the free will to not betray Jesus? The same vein. I'll just answer this first and Sebastian can comment. Um, nobody has free will. So neither did Judas Iscariot, nor did Peter, nor did anybody else. Um, in that sense, they all had wills that were independent. So that their wills would continue. Even if um, nobody was coercing them, they would continue acting their will. Judas Iscariot's will was to betray Jesus. That's how God created him. It's how he ended up. The devil enters him and he betrays Jesus. So he's even more coerced. 
um, it is the fate of Judas Iscariot to be the betrayer of Jesus and to suffer in hell for it. So that is a, uh, that was always going to happen. There was never a scenario where that was not going to happen. And perhaps, I don't know if this, the question is trying to get at this, but was Judas held at gunpoint to betray Jesus? No, he wanted, he perfectly, he was perfectly happy to do it. Right. This. Do you have any doubts, big or small, in your faith that you try to suppress or ignore? Sebastian, so, you want to take this one first? Sure. I don't know how big maybe doubts, for example, have I if, talked about it before, uh, before recording. Have, we, have I had my current understanding of the Bible challenged in the and I would say even corrected? Yeah. Am I open to that? Sure. But... I don't think I'm having an identity crisis on a regular basis. Yeah, and I'll say, I think the key here in this question to me is suppress or ignore. Because of course we have doubts, big or small, whatever they are. Um, our faith is kind of everything intricately we, that, believe, that we believe, and we try to stay open to that, right? Uh, Sebastian's on a hunt, and maybe the Septuagint, the Greek uh, version of the Old Testament, is more accurate than the current Hebrew that's in our current Bibles. Um, they're pretty similar, of course, in all grand scheme of things, but like that could change our faith, and so that's a smaller big faith to that portion of it. But the key, the key portions of the faith are as real to us as like our, our human fathers are. And if somebody was trying to convince us that our human fathers aren't real, um, they may get us to think about that like by arguing that everything's a simulation and therefore our fathers aren't real or something like that. But like our overwhelming evidence is that our human fathers are real. And in the same way, our overwhelming evidence is that God is real. Um, and therefore I don't suppress or ignore doubts. Um, I try to address them always. Um, they're pretty rare to be honest, because I've, I've been around the block a couple of times. So new arguments are things that would make you doubt and, uh, they're few and far between, but uh, when they happen, I try not to suppress or ignore them either. I try to attack them, right? <laughs> like, uh, not I guess in that way it's suppressing, but it's suppressing with with addressing it. It's not trying to just like put it out of your mind. Addressing is a good word. Or putting the Bible aside, do you personally believe that every single non-believer you meet deserves to suffer agonizing pain for all eternity simply for not repenting and believing in God, even though some of them may not know God or may not know the right God? So I'll take this one first. Um, yeah, you're kind of asking the wrong man, Gur, because uh, you can't really, if you're truly a believer, you can't really put the Bible aside. So my my view of justice is permanently colored by the Bible because I'm a Bible-believing Christian. So even if I don't have the Bible in my hands or I'm not going to directly quote scripture, which again, I know scripture is kind of hard to put it aside. Um, but yes, my, my view of justice says that we all deserve hell, Christians and non-Christians. And the only difference between Christians and non-Christians is the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. So yes, I personally believe that every single non-believer or believer deserves hell outside of Christ. And so those who are outside of Christ will receive it and those who are inside of Christ will not receive their just punishment in that way and they'll instead receive uh, the grace of God. So yes, I, I do believe this. I'm sure it's not the answer you were hoping for because you're hoping we have some mercy and that shows that God is not as merciful as men. Um, but in that side, God is God is perfectly just. He's far more just than men. So unjust men might not realize that everybody deserves hell. Um, but personally, I've, I've been colored by the Bible and therefore, yes, I do believe that all deserve hell. Uh, right, and again, we didn't. No one deserves to be saved, as we've been hammering down throughout this video. That 
the difference between a believer and a non-believer is not that one is a better person. It's not what you bring to the table, but rather it is the mercy of the undeserved mercy of the judge. So we're saying he has the right to judge as he, as he best sees fit. I'm also going to say, I think this is a very offensive position because nobody, even including Christians, will ever say this, but Christians are nicer and better than non-Christians on whole because of the fruits of the Spirit. There might be so-called Christians that are not, and there might be struggling true Christians that are not, but they are the exception. Um, they're not the rule. And so, yes, I would challenge you, find somebody who actually believes the Bible, and I, I will bet you that they are far nicer and better handled than, than non-believers of similar ilk and upbringing. So, um, yes, I do hold that Christians are, are characteristically better than non-Christians almost on a universal basis. Um, again, it sounds arrogant, whatever, and Christians often are like, oh, too arrogant, I'll never say that. But it is true, we believe that fruits of the Spirit, that, that good fruits come from a good heart, and the only people with good hearts are those who have been transformed by the Holy Spirit. And so um, there are seemingly nice non-Christians, um, but I even think then they, they do pale in comparison to true Christians. God hardened Pharaoh's heart, but why didn't God just soften it instead? This one's really knock out of the park because it's straight out of the Bible, but um, the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart for a purpose. That's why he didn't soften it. He's uh, to show his glory. He wanted to show the Israelites his glory, and he wanted to show Egypt the futility of their God. So that's why he hardened his heart. He says so in Exodus, I believe he answers that question, and also it's echoed back in Romans that Pharaoh would serve as an example for all nations, and that God would display his power on Pharaoh. And did, his, did Pharaoh deserve to have his heart softened? Not really. I mean, again, back, back to Romans, God created Pharaoh for that purpose. And the creator of the universe can do as he pleases. And just in case it's ever questioned, I mean, we fully believe that God has many purposes for Pharaoh. Like Pharaoh did a lot of things, presumably ruling Egypt when he did. So it's not that he had one purpose, but this is a purpose of his. It's a big purpose in God's plans, the one that he describes. So he doesn't he doesn't describe to us his other purposes, but he does describe this one purpose at least. And that is that he's going to show an example that the Egyptian gods are futile and that God is the only true God to both the Hebrews and the Egyptians of the time. So this one's like a real knock out of the park one. Maybe you mean to say, shouldn't have God um, just softened his heart. Like, shouldn't he not have had this story for Pharaoh? Um, truly, who are we to say what God does with this creation, right? Like, Pharaoh is not a good person that God made wicked. He's a wicked person. God made him wicked, but he is a wicked person, and so he deserves justice, and that's the story that God is writing. How can an all-perfect creator create a creation that has the desire to be less than perfect? Uh, I've got an even better question for you philosophically. How can a all-perfect creator create a creation that is less than perfect? Because, of course, God sustains all things, and not all things are perfect. Um, the The philosophy here goes back to the very first question of how did God create the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Like, why did he do that? Uh, we would say that in creation's imperfection, it is perfected. God's perfect plan was to have creation fall and then be redeemed, and the, those who 
the art redeemed to be judged. That was his perfect plan. So that's actually the look at perfection is that completion of the story. And so it, was, it would not have been perfect had there not been less than perfect things. It might sound kishy, um, but it's like in a lot of atheist secular TV shows. So maybe you can find some, some gravitas in there. Um, but that's fully what the Christian belief believes. And that is perfection is um, through this imperfect thing. So it's actually perfect, even though there are those who are not perfect inside of it. Indeed, he he is displaying his justice, as we've been saying over and over again, in the punishment of the wicked, and his love and mercy on those who don't deserve to be rescued from their evil. What I mean by that is, even with free will, why do we desire to sin if we were made by, and in the image of, a perfect, sinless God? Uh... You want to take this one first, Sebastian? Sure. So we desire to sin because of the fall that was ordained by God. We are in the image of God. Adam was made in the image of God. I don't think he was made a identical to God. For mine, I, I, I believe there's um, the, the Orthodox love to talk about the image of God. So that's what immediately starts coming to mind. But doesn't mean identical to to God in every single way. Likewise, I believe the women are, are referred to as the image of man. Mm -hmm. Correct if I'm, if I'm mistaken. So, but we're not identical. So we are very similar in many aspects to God, but we are not perfect. We're not omnipotent. We can't just teleport wherever we want. You you get the you get the the drift, and we desire to sin because our nature has been changed since the fall our inclinations have changed right and again um this is why we desire to sin because it was uh, you can point back to ultimately god's plan to to redeem to have a redemption story in the world they were, it was going to involve sin here so that's why we sin even when we were made by a perfect god and originally adam was made sinless Leave your answers in the comments, or if you make a video response, post a link to it and I'll watch it. Please share this video with your friends and take care. Thanks. So there you go. We will post this in the comments and we're supposed to up on our own page. Kermania, uh, maybe we'll have a conversation in the future. Maybe we'll be in one of your streams if I ever get the gumption to do it. Um, but at least here we've answered your 10 questions for Christians and hopefully we prove true that Calvinism is the most consistent Christian philosophy. Any closing comments, Sebastian? Well, we appreciate, again, your kindness for moderating the debate. It was unexpected from what I recall, right, or like last minute. So appreciate it, and I look forward to hear what you have to say, Carmenia. All right, and that's why we have found our cause in serving the Lord Jesus Christ. I've been Michael, the man behind the machine, and to my friend has been... Sebastian. The bookkeeper. Thank you for listening. If you want to see the rest of our episodes, you can go to foundcause.podbean.com where you can download them all for your listening pleasure. That's audio only, though. If you want to see the visuals of uh, me and Sebastian and the text that's up on the screen of Grimania's video, you'll have to go to YouTube or Facebook and like and subscribe, of course. Share with your grandma, share with everybody you, you know so that we can blow up and start making a living. I'm just kidding. Uh, we, <laughs> we do this for fun. Um, so, Lord willing, it just reaches the right people. It does not reach that many people. Uh, that being said, until we see you next time with a completely different video. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.